Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil some form or another. Yes, I am. Not 100%, but I am. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. Now, really quick, guys, I want to share something. I am planning a podcast about the fact that there seem to be so many serial killers born in the 40s, as well as which ones were doing what and if they ever crossed paths. With this podcast, I am going to have an after show segment or a part two, if you will, where I'm going to read your submitted theories and I will react to them. So after the podcast is released and I'll release reminders so you guys know. Please submit your theories or questions to me via Instagram at serial underscore killing or leave a comment on the YouTube channel under the same name of this podcast. Or you can email me at serialkillinginstagram, all one word, at gmail.com. So do so, please. I can't wait. I'm so excited. And thanks to my friend Ashley Peppermill sharing with me the death of one of these guys in the past few days, which is why this week's podcast will be on the Toolbox Killers, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Now, since there are two of them, let's just sit back, let's relax, let's get settled in for a good long podcast. Here we go. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker was born on September 27, 1940 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So let's get into some history for that time. Now in 1940, Germany and Italy agreed to form an alliance together against France and the United Kingdom. Germany then invaded Denmark and Norway during World War II. Germany also invaded France this year, then went on to the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg. Great Britain began rationing food, and they created ration books that contained these coupons for specific items such as bacon, sugar, and butter, though they soon had to add tea, jelly, cereals, biscuits, eggs, milk, cheese, and canned fruit to the list. 
It then escalated to rationing meat, gasoline, clothing, paper, and even soap. This rationing wasn't completely and officially over until 1954. The Selective Training and Service Act, which we just call Selective Service, was passed and became law. This required men between the ages of 21 and 35 years of age to register for the draft lottery, which could see them being sent off to war, even though the United States had not yet officially entered World War II. Japan bombed Pearl Harbor the next year, thus the U.S. entering the war. But on a brighter note, the annular solar eclipse was seen from the U.S. in April. The sun was completely blocked out for up to seven full minutes by the moon with a thin, narrow ring of light around the rim. Austin, Texas had the best view, with 93% of the sun covered. Pantyhose became available to consumers this year, or what some call nylon stockings. The Lescaux prehistoric cave paintings were discovered in France accidentally by a small family. Discovered inside were these spectacular, prehistoric, and elaborate paintings from humans who existed alongside saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths. Disney's cartoon movie Pinocchio was released with Fantasia. And some other notable people born in 1940 were John Lennon, Richard Pryor, Mario Andretti, Frankie Avalon, Peter Fonda, John Gotti, The Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Al Pacino, and Nancy Pelosi. So this was the atmosphere that Lawrence was born into. Lawrence's birth parents had already decided that they never wanted to have children, so his mother placed him in an orphanage, and he was immediately adopted by George and Thelma Bittaker. The couple were 37 and 40, respectively. They married in 1933, and both were native to Ohio. Now, Lawrence would later go on to say that George and Thelma were a distant uncle and aunt to him, but I couldn't verify that. Now, George worked in aircraft factories, and that meant the family had to move fairly often while Lawrence was a child. They moved from Pennsylvania to Florida, then from Florida back up to Ohio, but then they finally settled in California. The moving caused a lot of stress and upset for the boy, who felt that he would get settled somewhere, you know, make friends, begin to fit in, and then get uprooted to move to a whole new place. There isn't really much about Lawrence's younger childhood. We do know that his IQ was tested at 138, which is considered quite advanced. He was described as an excellent student who made nearly perfect grades. He got along with his teachers for the most part, but felt as though he was a constant outsider. He was shy and a bit of a loner. In high school, due to his high intelligence, he found the classes to be boring, no challenge at all. To cure some of his boredom, he began committing petty crimes. 
He was arrested for car theft, leaving the scene of a hit-and-run accident, and evading arrest. He dropped out of high school in 1957, and due to his legal troubles, he was put into the California Youth Authority. He turned 18 there. And also, huge side note, Edmund Kemper would also wind up with the California Youth Authority, but not until 1964, which is some years later, so they were not there at the same time. So that was Lawrence's childhood. But let's take a look at Roy's childhood next. Okay, so Roy Lewis Norris was born on February 5th, 1948 in Greeley, Colorado. In 1948, World War II was already over and cleanup had begun. The founding of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or as we know it, North Korea, was established. It was then a communist dictatorship with a supreme leader. The World Health Organization was established and on that day, it became a worldwide day of awareness known as World Health Day. Its primary objective was to research health issues, getting rid of disease, and promoting healthy practices worldwide. And it has been pretty successful. Also in 1948, the British National Health Service created the National Health Service, or NHS. It was a rather ambitious social program that would provide free health care to all citizens of the United Kingdom, and it's funded entirely by taxes charged to its citizens. Others born this year were Prince Charles, Alice Cooper, Al Gore, Samuel L. Jackson, and the Ozzy Osbourne. So as we can see, these two men were born into two pretty different times. Now, Roy Norris was conceived out of wedlock, which was a most scandalous thing back in those days. His parents were forced to get married quickly before his birth as to, you know, avoid the social label that would be put on them for having sex before marriage. His grandfather was a self-made man of sorts. Um, you know, he was a real estate investor. But for whatever reason, Roy's father worked at a scrapyard while his mother was a housewife. Now, sources say his mother was addicted to drugs, but on what, I couldn't find. And he didn't always live with his parents either. And he also had a younger sister. It is said that he sometimes lived in foster homes throughout Colorado. He says that his parents were verbally abusive, telling him that he and his sister were unwanted. And when he was placed in foster care, a lot of the time he was neglected or abused. He stated he was denied food, left hungry more often than not, and also says a member of a Hispanic foster family sexually abused him and Roy says this is why he has always been prejudiced against Hispanics. Now it was stated that Roy was a misfit and always seemed to be getting into trouble and I think we can all agree why. He also felt extremely awkward toward girls throughout his adolescence. 
At the age of 16, Roy was living with his actual parents and the family went to visit some other family. And one of those family members was a girl in her very early 20s. Roy started speaking to her in a very inappropriate, sexual, and vulgar way, so much so that she demanded he leave the house, and his father threatened to beat him over what he had said. Of course, I can't blame his dad, but that's neither here nor there. At some point not long after, Roy took to stealing his father's car and driving into the mountains of Colorado. At another point, he tried to kill himself by injecting nothing but air into a vein. And yet again, he ran away from home, but was caught and taken back to his parents' house. His parents again reiterated that he and his sister had never been wanted and that they would be getting divorced as soon as those kids came of age. At 17 years old, Roy dropped out of high school and he joined the Navy. So let's start off by looking at Lawrence's childhood. Now here is another example where we don't have really any information about his birth parents, what type of people they were, or if there were any issues genetically, mentally, and so on. We know they were married and had decided that they never wanted to have children. We have to assume that they took precautions, but at some point his mother did become pregnant. Once Lawrence was born, he was given to an orphanage, but he wasn't there long when he was adopted by, you know, supposed extended family. And then we have very little to go on regarding his adoptive parents, and I dug. Believe me, I dug. His father worked, and we have to assume that his mother was a housewife. Lawrence did have to move from time to time, giving him a possible lack of, quote, roots. According to the American Psychological Association, moving repeatedly in childhood is associated with poorer quality of life years later, and this becomes even more intense if the child is more introverted or has some form of mental issue. They tend to have more behavioral problems, and the interruption in their social maturity cannot be understated. They go on to have fewer quality social relationships as adults. Lawrence was already stealing in his very early teens, and one expert stated he was already showing some sociopathic signs even back then. So we would see problems with impulse control, dishonesty, low or no empathy for others and their feelings, no real remorse or guilt for negative behaviors. The teen will be manipulative and possibly even have violent tendencies. And then, of course, we can't ignore the fact that I'm sure he knew his entire life that he was adopted. While most children do not experience negative effects after they know that they're adopted, there is some at least statistically relevant information that says the child can experience feelings of loss, grief, anger, or anxiety. They could possibly feel as though they were a mistake or they're bad or they were unwanted. 
Now looking at Roy's childhood, we see a child whose conception was also unwanted. But unlike Lawrence, Roy's parents did what most did under those circumstances. They got married. They decided to raise their child. And while I couldn't find anything that said what drugs his mother was doing, the most common drug for mothers to take back in the 50s was barbiturates. Doctors prescribed them what they called, quote, mother's little helper. More often than not, they were prescribed Valium, which is a sedative. I'm sure you've all heard of it. Now, I can't swear this is what drug she was abusing, but, you know, there it is. We know that Roy was in and out of foster homes, so he would have most likely experienced that, quote, lack of roots issue the same as Lawrence could have. But Roy had the added bonus of being told that he was never wanted by his own parents, then neglected and abused in at least one foster home. There is just a broad spectrum of issues that arise from abusive foster homes or, you know, abusive homes in general. There's the emotional trauma that causes low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, trust issues, PTSD, suicidal tendencies, which we saw in Roy, and even attachment disorders. And if you've been with me long enough... You know how serious that can be. So basically, we see two boys who felt unsure about the security of their entrance into the world, not feeling really grounded or that any particular place was home, truly home. They both were intelligent but had behavioral problems that were not addressed as they should have been. Possible personality disorders foster homes, juvenile records. It's just not a great recipe. So let's get into their stories. Now, Lawrence Bitteker was released from the Youth Authority at 19 years old and promptly went to go see his parents, only they weren't there. He couldn't seem to actually find them. You know why? Because they had completely disowned him and moved out of the state. So within days of his release, he was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle across state lines. He was then sentenced to 18 months in prison, which was served in the Oklahoma State Reformatory, which leads me to believe he was caught in Oklahoma, which is quite the distance from California. Now, he actually displayed model behavior there and was transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. Now, guys, I happen to be pretty familiar with that very medical prison. That prison is for male inmates who have medical or mental health issues. To my knowledge, they do not house regular inmates there. There has to be some kind of issue which leads me to believe that they sent him there to be treated for a mental health issue since there was no information as to any injuries or medical issues he might have been suffering from. But regardless of why he was at the medical prison, he was released in 1960 and he traveled back to California, 
planting himself in Los Angeles. Within months, he was arrested yet again for robbery. In May 1961, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Now, at this time, he was seen by a psychiatrist who diagnosed him as being highly manipulative and, quote, having considerable concealed hostility, poor control of impulse behavior, unquote. It was determined he was, quote, borderline psychotic. So in 1963, after only serving two years, he was released. A year later, he was back in prison for a parole violation. So in 1966, two independent psychiatrists evaluated him, and both of them diagnosed him as a borderline psychopath who was unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. He was then prescribed an antipsychotic drug to take, which did help him somewhat, and he was released a year later. Now, folks, he told those doctors that committing crimes gave him a sense of self-importance, and he was not able to control his urge due to the circumstances of his upbringing. Do you think that this should have been a red flag? So after this release, a month later, he was back in custody again, convicted of theft and leaving the scene of an accident, and he was released three years later, in and out of prison multiple times for petty crimes and parole violations. Then in 1974, when Lawrence was 34 years old, he was in a grocery store stealing steak from the meat department. An employee witnessed this and followed him outside of the store where the employee kind of politely confronted him about the stake, asking, you know, did you maybe forget to pay for it? Lawrence drew out a knife he had and stabbed the young employee just under his heart. I mean, this kid barely survived. He then tried to run, but two other employees grabbed him. He was subdued and arrested convicted of assault with a deadly weapon, and sent to California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. Okay, so we're leaving Lawrence in the men's colony, and we're going to go back to Roy. Roy, after joining the Navy, was stationed in San Diego. He was then sent to Vietnam during that war, where he worked as an electrician. While there, he started experimenting with drugs, namely heroin. And while he didn't actually see active combat, his tour of duty was four months, and then he was sent back to San Diego. Later that same year, Roy was arrested for rape and assault with an attempt to commit rape. Now, I'm assuming that he made bail because a few months later, in February of 1970, he walked up to a woman's house he knocked on the door, and he tried to sweet-talk his way in. The woman refused to let him in, of course, so he tried breaking in. But the woman called the police, and they were able to get there in time. So it was at this point that Roy was ordered to see a military psychologist who diagnosed him as having a, quote, severe schizoid personality, unquote. 
So looking at that, we see that while similar, schizoid personality disorder is not the same as schizotypal personality disorder. Roy's is a more uncommon condition, according to the Mayo Clinic, in which people avoid social activities and consistently shy away from interactions with others. They have limited range of emotional expression. They lack the skills as well as the desire to form close, personal relationships. They are often dismissive. They might seem humorless, no sense of humor, have a lack of motivation, a lack of goals, and so on. It was at this point that he was honorably discharged from the Navy. Then in May of 1970, Roy, who had been walking around the campus of San Diego State University, attacked a female student, hitting her multiple times in the back of the head with a rock. And then once she fell down, he began beating her head into the concrete walkway. He was caught, arrested, and committed to the Atascadero State Hospital for five years. He was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. Now here's another really big side note. Ed Kemper was released from Atascadero one year before Roy was there. So it would seem that Lawrence and Roy, neither one of them spent any time with Ed. So Roy was then released from the state hospital in 1975. He was 27 years old. He was released and he received only five years probation. His doctors said that he was, get this, quote, no further danger to others, unquote. Three months later, Roy was riding a motorcycle when he saw a woman walking along and he offered her a ride. She turned down the offer, so he parked his bike. He grabbed her. He wrapped her scarf around her neck and informed her that he was going to rape her. After that was over and he let her go, she reported it to the police. A month later, Roy's motorcycle was recognized and he was arrested for the rape. After his sentencing, he was sent to the California men's colony where Lawrence was also imprisoned. So with both of them in the same place, it took the two about a year to finally become somewhat acquainted within the prison. Lawrence was slightly impressed with Roy's reputation of being kind of savvy with the biker gangs and the drug dealers in the prison. So Lawrence started associating himself and they became pals, you know. Roy started teaching Lawrence how to make prison jewelry and whatnot. At some point, Roy allegedly saved Lawrence from getting attacked by other prisoners on two different occasions. And after that, the two became close friends. They realized they had some things in common, like a love of sexual violence and misogyny. Roy told Lawrence that he really got off on what really turned him on was women's terrified faces. Lawrence confessed that he had never committed any sex crimes, but that, you know, if he did, he would kill the woman after so she couldn't report him. 
This is a match made in hell, guys. So they regularly chit-chatted about things like, I don't know, planning the assaults and murders of teenage girls once they were out of prison. Then they fantasized about and ultimately decided that they would murder one girl from each age, between 13 to 19. They promised to find each other and work together once they were both released from prison. Now, Lawrence was released first, and he actually behaved himself nicely. He got a great job as a machinist, and he earned about $1,000 a week, which back then was super good money. He did actually make some friends around the neighborhood that he had moved into, and those friends would go on to describe him as generous, helpful, even saying that he donated money to the Salvation Army. He was even known to buy, like, these large quantities of fast food and beverages, and then he would go hand it out to the homeless. I mean, this sounds like a model citizen to me. Three months after Lawrence was released, Roy was as well. Roy moved in with his mother in Redondo Beach and worked as an electrician in Compton. But then Roy received a letter from Lawrence, and the next month, the two met up at a hotel and began planning to kidnap and rape teen girls. First, they wanted a cargo van, and they bought one. It looked exactly like those vans that we girls all describe as a rape van. You know the ones I'm talking about. No windows in the back, big sliding doors on the sides. Yup, one of those. They installed a bed in it, and beneath the bed was a cooler for beer and drinks, spare clothes, various tools. They named their van Murder Mac. The first half of 1979, they practiced becoming comfortable with picking up female hitchhikers. They also found an old fire road that was quite secluded in the San Gabriel Mountains. Then, toward the end of June, they decided they were ready. Sixteen-year-old Lucinda Schaefer walked out of her Presbyterian church. Roy and Lawrence saw her walking down a quiet street. They pulled up next to her and tried to entice her into the van with promises of alcohol and marijuana or even to give her a ride to her house, to which she declined. So they drove up ahead, they parked, and they waited for her to pass by. Roy grabbed her, he pulled her into the van, and Lawrence sped off, turning the music up as loud as it would go to drown out her screams. The duo drove to the secluded fire road, each taking turns raping the girl. Lucinda asked if they were going to kill her, and Roy told her no. She then asked to be given time to pray if they did in fact plan on murdering her. Roy attempted to strangle her then and there, but was put off by the girl maintaining eye contact with him, and he supposedly jumped out of the van and vomited. So then Lawrence started to strangle her until she began convulsing. So he put a coat hanger around her neck, twisting it tighter and tighter around her neck with some vice grips. 
Needless to say, she was not given time to pray. They wrapped her in plastic sheeting and threw her down in a canyon, agreeing that the local wildlife would take care of the rest. Two weeks later, Roy and Lawrence picked up an 18-year-old Andrea Hall while she was hitchhiking, and they slowed down to offer her a nice cold beverage. They then pounced, but she fought hard. They wound up having to twist her arm behind her back, causing her to scream in pain. Roy then gagged her with tape and tied her up. They took her to their little secluded area where she was repeatedly raped. They then forced her to walk further up the road, naked, then perform oral sex on Lawrence before taking many Polaroid pictures of her. They got back in the van and drove to a nearby store to buy some more alcohol. While Ray was in the store, Lawrence told her that they were going to kill her and that she should give him as many reasons as she could to make it worth sparing her life. He then took an ice pick and stabbed her through the ear and into her brain. He then rolled her over and did the same to the other ear. He then strangled her. They drove back to the canyon and they threw her body off of a cliff. In September, the duo spotted two girls sitting on a bus stop bench and offered them a ride. And the girls, of course, accepted. The men offered them some marijuana, which they also happily accepted. And once the girls noticed that Lawrence had veered off of the highway, they began to get scared. 13-year-old Jacqueline Lamp tried to open the side-sliding door of the van, but Roy hit her in the head, knocking her unconscious. He then grabbed 15-year-old Jackie Gillum, tying her up and gagging her. Jacqueline regained consciousness and began to fight, so Lawrence pulled the van over to help Roy get the girls under control. The men then drove into the San Gabriel Mountains, where they kept the girls for nearly two days, physically and sexually abusing them. They forced the girls to pose for pornographic Polaroids. Lawrence took out a tape recorder and recorded himself raping little Jackie. She was tortured terribly. So, disclaimer, disclaimer... He used an ice pick to stab both of her breasts and used pliers to rip off one of her nipples. Both girls were murdered and thrown out into the wilderness. On Halloween in 1979, Lawrence and Roy would abduct their last victim. 16-year-old Shirley Ledford was standing outside of a gas station and accepted a ride from Roy and Lawrence. Now, Lawrence recognized her and she him because she was a waitress at a restaurant that he ate at frequently. Once inside, they tied her up and gagged her, then drove around for a while, Roy behind the wheel and Lawrence in the back. This attack was recorded, and it is actually transcribed out there, if you have the stomach to read it. 
It's horrific, and I want no part of reading it, so I'm not going to, I'm sorry. But needless to say, she was beaten and tortured with pliers, tender flesh torn, ripped beyond repair. They demanded she scream as the torture went on for some time. Due to the damage inflicted to her genital area and rectum, neither one of them raped her. They, however, pulled over to switch drivers and Roy began hitting her in the elbow with a sledgehammer. Her torment lasted for two hours. And by the time they put the coat hanger around her neck and began twisting it tighter and tighter, she really had no fight left in her anyway. The next month, Roy was chatting it up with an old inmate friend, Joseph. He confided in his friend about what he and Lawrence had done to those girls. At this point, Shirley Ledford's body had actually been found. Now, like any sane person would, Joseph was horrified, and he and his lawyer went to talk to the police. So... It was immediately noticed that the details Joseph had shared about what had happened to Shirley did match information that they had not made public. There was another girl who said she had been attacked by the men, beaten and raped, but released. The authorities showed her a series of mugshots and she immediately identified Lawrence and Roy. Soon after, Roy was arrested after he had been under surveillance and caught dealing drugs, which was a parole violation. Lawrence was soon arrested after. And then after searching Lawrence's apartment, they found his... After searching Lawrence's apartment, they found his Polaroid trophies. They also searched the van where they found the sledgehammer, a plastic bag filled with lead weights, a jar of Vaseline, and the recording of Shirley's torture. Her own mother had to identify her young daughter's voice on that recording. Can you imagine? At first, Roy denied everything. But once they showed him some of the evidence they had, he broke down and confessed. But of course, he wanted it to look like Lawrence was the main culprit. Both gave varying stories to make the other look more guilty than themselves, which is typical. The authorities also found Polaroids of other missing teens, but have never been able to identify them. Roy took investigators to the areas where the duo had disposed of the bodies, and while they did find two of the victims, the ice pick was still in Jackie Gillum's skull. In February 1980, both were formally charged with the murders of the five girls. Roy accepted a plea bargain to testify against Lawrence so that he would not get the death penalty, which was still a thing back then. More than 100 people were in the courtroom when the torture tape was played. Most sobbed and hid their face in their hands, but some literally rushed out of the courtroom before the tape was done. You want to know how Lawrence described the tape? He called it, quote, real funny, unquote. 
In March, Lawrence was sentenced to death, but then was given life imprisonment. He showed zero emotion during his sentencing, and Roy was given a life sentence. Lawrence died from natural causes at the age of 79 this past December 2019. Roy died just four days ago, as of this recording, from natural causes on February 24th, 2020. Now guys, I don't even know. I don't even know. Both of these men had serious behavioral issues, and it was known to the authorities long before these murders were committed. Now, Lawrence had never technically committed a sexual crime before meeting Roy, but both were diagnosed with very real and potentially dangerous personality disorders. I just don't really have words for closing thoughts on this. I want to say that this should have never happened and that they should have stayed locked up as they had proved over and over again that they could not function properly in open society. You know, but at the same time, I understand that it's the judicial process that has to be followed and no one agency or judge is to be blamed. I feel horrible for their young victims and anyone in that courtroom that had to listen to that tape. But tell me guys, what do you think? Again, leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. I have a website, SerialKilling.Squarespace.com, and also consider sponsoring. It takes a lot of time to do these, but I love doing them for you. And thanks so much for listening. I appreciate each one of you, as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Thank you, 